What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I'm fine and dandy, and good evening to all those poor people who've chosen to join us either live or in the podcast later on. Mm-hmm. Have my mm-hmm. commiserations. Hey, we are a professional time-wasting podcast. We are, and we waste time in, in large chunks. Yes, we, we know how to waste it better than anyone. Now, this is episode 150 of Armchair Producers. Wow, yeah, we should have had like a celebration or something. Actually, this is how professional we were. I didn't realize that until the second. (laughs) A century and a half of episodes. And that doesn't count the old ones. No, no, I think. The G&T podcast. I think we got to like 70-odd with the uh, G&T podcast. So we're over 200 officially. You'd oh, expect a... better from someone who's been doing it this long. You really, really would. <laughs> but here we are. What can I say? Hey, we do this on the smell of an oily rag. Very much so. This is done out of love yes. and desperation. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have chosen for us this week. I think we have an interesting chain film this week. Uh, mm. We've been watching um, Blowout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we followed on from last week's Carrie with the, the great director Brian De Palma to another um, collaboration between John Travolta and uh, Nancy Allen. Allen, yes, thank you. With the classic and um, apparently one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies, Blowout. Um, I will pick where we go next for that. Um, we both checked out the new Netflix movie starring Chris Hemsworth and Miles Teller um, called Spiderhead. Um, we've got, I'm guessing we've got episode three of the Trek Respective. We most certainly do. Excellent, excellent. It's what the people are asking for. Um, I have watched the finale of Obi-Wan Kenobi. I will not go into spoilers per se because it only came out today and that's not given many people a chance to see it but I will give general thoughts. Um, the new episode of Ms. Marvel, Travis has checked out The Offer, which I believe is the uh, kind of making of story behind The Godfather. Recommended by one of our viewers a couple of weeks ago. That, that's true. That's true. Um, and I'm presuming it's the palette cleanser. It'll be, it'll be a surprise. It'll be a surprise. There's a surprise mm. entry for later on in the second mm. half of the show. I'm going to keep people waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, to hear about it, and yes, the end of that that sentence that George was about to deliver was a yes, it was this week's palate cleanser. I figured, I um, figured, I figured that was the case. Unfortunately, I'll give you this, this hint: it mm-hmm. wasn't Rocky Four. Like in one of those great snafus <laughs> where you're going around looking at things you can stream, mm-hmm. and you look at the movie, you're looking at Prime, and you go, "Oh, there's Rocky Four. It's on Prime. I can watch it on Prime." In America, and then when you go to look at it on Prime, it's like join here for a free trial of MGM's online streaming. I didn't even know they had one. In, didn't even know MGM had a streaming service. What do they even have? Because Prime have already got Bond. What does the MGM have? I don't know, but they wanted me to sign up for a free trial that was going to be like $5 a week, which I know isn't much, but like, you know what it is? Like, you sign up for one of these free trials for a week. There's no bloody way I'm going to remember to go back and cancel it later. I'll guarantee I'll forget it. Yeah, I'll uh-huh. end up paying uh-huh. six. That's six what later. they anticipate. That's yeah. that's how they make their money. Okay, six months later, I'm like, I'm paying for MGM. Like, what the fuck? And like, <laughs> then they pay like you know, fifty bucks or something. And like, uh, no, no, thank you. Not paying extra, Mister Bezos. Um, <laughs> so unfortunately, we didn't make Rocky Four as the um, as the palate cleanser. 
But um, all will be revealed in the second half. Mm-hmm. So stick around for that. Yeah. So let's get straight on into it. And uh, let's let's talk about our chain movie of the week, which, Travis, you talked about. So introduce our Blowout. darling. From 1981, a movie sound recorder accidentally records the evidence that proves that a car accident was actually murder and consequently finds himself in danger. Mm-hmm. As you noted, our link from last week is the director and writer, Brian De Palma, mm-hmm. starring John Travolta, Nancy Allen, John Lithgow, and Dennis Franz. Remember Dennis Franz? He was famous. He was one of those faces that was just everywhere for a while. For about five minutes, because of NYPD Blue, and then apparently, you look him up, he retired about 15 years ago and does, does nothing now. Like, I mean, I guess he's on residuals. Like, whatever. Yeah. Good luck to you. Um, and those are probably your familiar faces, those four. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as you hinted earlier, this apparently is what I didn't know this, but this is one of Tarantino. It is, I believe, mm-hmm. apparently his favorite Brian De Palma film, mm-hmm. and is apparently the, the film of a role that made him think to hire John Travolta for Pulp Fiction. So that's mm-hmm. quite an auspicious little little um, yeah feather in this film's cap. Yeah. Um, the, the longer storyline, the stylish Brian De Palma Philip uh, thriller, sorry, plays off the theme of the unsuspecting witness who discovers a crime and is thereby put in grave danger, but for double twist. Jack Terry, John Travolta, is a master audio technician who makes his living by recording unique sounds for hot grade B horror movies. Late one night, he's recording sounds for use in his movies, and he hears something unexpected through the sound equipment and records it. Curiosity gets the better of him and when the media become involved and he begins to unravel the pieces of a nefarious conspiracy as he struggles to survive against his shadow enemies and expose the truth. He does not know whom he can trust. Mm-hmm. This is a hidden gem. It is. It definitely is. Interestingly enough, it's actually a remake. It's one of the few kind of remakes that um, stands on its own. I'm thinking of The Thing as another similar example, but this was based off of Blow Up from 1966. Which, believe it or not, I've actually seen. Um, Which is interesting because if you look at the credits here, Mm. there's no credited writer apart from Brian De Palma and Mm -hmm. Bill Neese Jr., um, so you're right. Uh, as soon as I read the description of this, I'm like, that sounds a hell of a lot like Blow Up by Antonioni, Michelangelo Antonioni. Uh, mm. I watched it for cinema studies back in 1996. So I was like, but is it a remake? Because they don't credit Antonioni or anyone yeah. in the previous film as a writer of this, but it is a direct ripoff of that film. Oh, yeah, 100%. They've simply transplanted the notion of um, a picture capturing the murder to audio, which I think is a rather interesting and uh, compelling um, twist on the story. But um, the the thing that really... um, a lot of reviewers, I, I read some reviews or, or like delayed reviews on um, uh, Blowout and a lot of people were kind of saying it's very Hitchcock- Hitchcockian. And yeah, definitely. Yes, the way that yes. it's filmed, the way that the story progresses, everything about it, it feels very much like your quintessential Hitchcock as well. So it's kind of, it's an interesting one that it's like, all right, I would have thought that there would have been... Um, based upon an idea of blow up and inspired by, but maybe that this was a, a, in a time when maybe that wasn't exactly a thing. I guess. I mean, I would. Yeah, it's it, it's curious. It really is. So, 
I mean, uh, Blow Up was released in 1966. Mm-hmm. It's a British film, I think. The director was Italian. So that's David Hemmings and Vanessa Redgrave. And apparently mm-hmm. but there are three, and that's based on a short story. Um, yes. But we've got two writers in that film, Antonioni and a guy named Tony Guerra. Um, it's a strange film, Blow Up. It's a very strange film. Mm-hmm. Um, not as straight ahead as, as Blow Out is. Um, but um, it is. I was curious. I'm like, I don't see any acknowledgement of the previous film mm. anywhere on this film. So yeah, uh, maybe they just bought the rights wholesale, and that doesn't mean they don't have to. Yeah, I maybe. thought SAG rules said they did, or like um, the WAG, the New Writers Guild would insist on it being yeah. listed that yeah. way. But don't know. But um, this is a hidden little classic. Like I've mm. never even heard of this film. And the only reason I heard about this film is because Michelle and I were talking about a John Travolta film she couldn't remember in the early mm. 80s the other week, which turned out to be Saturday Night Fever. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Um, it's a sequel to um, Stan... No, Stan Alive. Sorry, Stan Alive. It's yeah. a sequel to Saturday Night Fever. And I which is directed by Sylvester Stallone. Stallone. It's gloriously what? random. You yeah. have the key, sir. That could be next week's film. We don't know. <laughs> um, we just don't know. Um, I'm not doing it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not um, putting this through that one. But once I saw it was by De Palma, I thought this is going to be a nice link in the chain. Mm. Um, I, I found it really, really nice. The film opens really in a really excellent little sequence of mm. uh, basically a film opens like a slasher film. Mm. We're following a slasher stalking a bunch of sorority girls, um, you know, in a sorority house, funnily enough, and, you know, murdering, you know, mm-hmm. uh, police officer and no, no, killing people. Like a slasher mm. would, and you're like, you're like, okay, I know what you're doing here, but like, you could be forgiven thinking, I didn't hire it, didn't watch a slasher film. Exactly. But it's just an intro to the the movie that um, that Jack is working on currently for the mm-hmm. sound for. Um, and it's actually, I love the, the setup so beautiful relationship between him and the director of a film and mm-hmm. the, um, the, the conversation and the banter between the two of them. It feels very natural. It's beautifully mm-hmm. written from the get go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. As we move forward, we, we uh, Jackie's out and about, as it sort of notes in the synopsis there. Uh, the director's really unhappy that he keeps using library sounds mm. um, for his movies. I've heard that sound a million times. So he's out and about in the park um, mm-hmm. recording audio that's to replace those sounds when he notices a car go flying off the road into a creek. He dives mm-hmm. into the water and manages to save one person from a car, a woman, mm-hmm. Nancy Allen Sally. But the mm-hmm. driver of a car is unable to save. Now and it's they... in this opening sequence where uh, John Travolta is um, uh, kind of filming specific noises and things as he hears. We start to really see a lot of the Brian De Palma directorial um, production side of it, with the um, dueling focus um, inspired by Sergio Leone. We saw a little bit of it last week in Carrie, where a couple mm-hmm. of moments we have like split screen and you know mm. different panels and i think mm. there was a lot Drawing more of it on those specific elements and he plays with it throughout the whole film and it is one of brian de palma's kind of signature moves um to to this day now and it it was really nice how he matched he introduced that in this movie as a storytelling device with um uh with jack just kind of highlighting what that noise is and things like that it worked really really well um, it just cranked up that level of isolation that uh, Travolta's character kind of lives in and experiences throughout the whole film. And the the 
something that I noticed about the movie is it does kind of feel like throughout the movie, but when we first enter it, it's him watching this movie and hearing the terrible scream and him having this one-on-one conversation. And as the story goes on, it literally gets louder and louder and louder until the very end and how it ends for him as a character just being all too much. I love that as a as a crescendo piece. It's fantastic. The sound design was fantastic in this mm-hmm. film, right? For a film from the early 80s, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it actually got nominated for any awards. It doesn't look like it did, um, which is a bit of a shame, really, because it, like it looks like it really sank beneath the waves, this film. Mm-hmm. Um, we Nancy Allen is... What would you call her? She's not a prostitute. She is a nefarious. She's involved. I guess she, she's in this for nefarious purposes initially, at least. She, the person she's in the car with, it turns out, was a high-profile politician mm-hmm. who was in line or favourite to be the next US president. Yeah. Um, and we later find out that her, well, initially at least, the police and the, his political um what do you call them, political staff are like telling John Travolta, don't pretend she wasn't in the car, don't say anything. Mm. Uh, yeah. And there's some echoes in here of Chappaquiddick, um, uh, Ted Kennedy, if you don't know the story, Ted Kennedy, uh, John F. Kennedy's youngest brother. There's a lot of Kennedys out there. I can't be expected to do yeah, that anymore. Uh, one of these brothers, uh, mm. but one who wasn't shot. Um <laughs> Uh, drove a car off a bridge in Chappaquiddick, which is, I think, in Massachusetts, mm. um, with a girl in the car who wasn't his wife. Uh, he may or may not have been drunk at the time, and she definitely, definitely did die um, mm. while she's in the car. And it's one of those great American political scandals that kind of took a giant chunk out of his political career. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, a famous, you know, charismatic politician, in a car with a girl who's not his wife and she just he crashes mm-hmm. into a river, you know, that's not by accident, right? That's no, not at all. <laughs> that's definite reference to, to, to what the real life. But we've had to find out that she's Ned Nancy Allen's character is, uh, by the way, it's a 40 year old film, so I assume spoilers are okay. Um, <laughs> um, she's actually <laughs> trying to extort the politician by taking, having, um, uh, should we say, um, Scandalous photos, or mm-hmm. photos taken of them in flagrante um, mm-hmm. by her husband, who is played, or husband, partner, boyfriend, partner. pimp, combination Maybe. of the above. Yeah. Choose any combination you like. Mm-hmm. Um, Dennis Franz, who actually plays a really good sleazeball. Um, yeah, he does. Um, and uh, he turns out he actually ends up selling. He's taking photographs of a car crash. She mm-hmm. ends up selling to like the. Yeah, National Enquirer version of in the in the film. Yeah, you believe he was thirty eight in this film? Holy shit! You know, was he, he ever looked, young? Is it? It's like Strickland. Jesus, didn't that guy ever have hair? Yeah, um, like <laughs> him, Donald Pleasance, and Hulk Hogan. They were born forty five. You just sort of look at him and go, he looks the same as he did ten years later when he did yeah. NYPD Blue. Yeah. But he's, he's just, 38. He's just a plastic person. He's not real. Uh, FYI, <laughs> NYPD Blue was the last credit acting credit for for Dennis France in 2005. Wow. So for someone who was like a big star for five minutes, like I said, mm-hmm. he just kind of walked away from it all. But, um, mm-hmm. So if you start to start to spiral down and get deeper into mm-hmm. his conspiracy, uh, we meet 
John Lithgow's book in a very strange turn for someone like John Lithgow? Well, yes and no. I mean, he was largely credited as being one of, if not the best villain in uh, the Dexter series. Oh, yes, I forgot about that. And this is quite evocative of that. Um, and he's like... Like he he is really good at being a sadistic bastard, and I'm thinking of his character BZ in the Santa Claus movie with Dudley Moore. Actually, now that I think about it, he was the bad guy in Cliffhanger, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And he, of course, he played the the um the king of a prince in Shrek. You know, yes. some of you may die, but that is a sacrifice I am prepared to make. Yes. Um, so he's he's kind. Yeah, I guess. I guess instantly. I guess. I guess. I just sort of um associate him with like um third rock from, third the, sun. Rock from the sun being yeah. <laughs> kind of like but he did so many other things but yeah. that's the first thing i think of with him but yeah. you're right so um it's it's not an in the grand scheme of his career i don't think it's an unusual turn but what does kind of twist it and make it unique is the intelligence and the pragmatism that goes into it. He is not a, um, he is a wealth, he thinks his villains through entirely and he, whether he just picks roles and uh, productions where it is a very well, fully realized villain modus operandi, or he develops that himself he always does well with this. Like the conversations, the brief conversations that, that we overhear of him on the phone with, with the people that have employed him and stuff. It's like, oh yeah, th this was going back to um, the meeting that we had on the 19th. Um, th this is a better, this is a better outcome for everyone. And it's very, very pragmatic. And it's almost like he's, he's a black ops CIA agent who's just kind of sort of gone rogue, but at the same time, not really. He's just going above and beyond the, the paradigms of his job. But, but then, interestingly, it says hmm. in the trivia here he based his character on G. Gordon Libby. Um, okay. I am going to put my American history hat on again. Mm -hmm. um, and G. Gordon Libby was one of the Watergate burglars. I think the lead Watergate burglar. So mm. I don't quote. Leader of the White House plumbers became central players in the Watergate scandal. Don't quote me. I'm not I'm a little bit before my time, mm. but I think he was a CIA guy. So, mm. uh, the FBI sense. agent, the internet's tell me. So, um, you know, uh, probably a good one to model yourself after. But he was, I liked his character. I actually really enjoyed his character. He didn't mm. have a lot of backstory. He just sort of turned up mm. doing scary, nefarious things like erasing all of John Travolta's tapes. I'm like, oh, isn't that cute? Remember when we used tapes? Yeah. Um, or like my old um, uh, mp3 recorder thing i used to have where i just forget to press play and record so um but like <laughs> i was thinking to myself it'd be interesting to even try a remake but how would you you couldn't do it quite as easily because it'd be usb sticks and sd cards and cloud storage and um, yeah i mean ask any politician it's really hard to get rid of photos off the internet <laughs> um so but well, he, he, so he erases um john travolta's tapes Mm -hmm. uh, while kind of stalking him, he attempts to kidnap Sally uh, from a bus stop, which I found a strange scene, by the way. Like, you can just roll up to a bus stop, grab a woman, and drag her off in um, Philadelphia, and no one pets a fucking eyelid. 
Um, Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love for you, but if you're a sister, mm-hmm. you're fucked. Um, <laughs> but it turns out when he gets, he, they fall down a hill or he's trying mm-hmm. to go, um, kidnap this woman, and it turns out it's not Sally. So he actually makes it look like a, a murder. Well, he wasn't a murder, but like a, a sex murder, I think he's, he called it. Like, yeah, that he enacted, sex. like, he tried to turn it into a, yeah, something it's that was that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, to, to sort of put the cops off for scent. Like, he, he stabs her in the pattern of the Liberty Bell or something like mm. that. And then you see him in a later scene calling up, I guess it's the police department, using a silly voice and mm-hmm. confessing to the murder and telling him where to find the body and saying he'll do it again and, yeah like almost zodiac killer-esque yeah yeah and you're like wow he's actually a pretty impressive guy and like he um mm-hmm. but, uh, but you do kind of question uh, um the, the the final sequence where he kidnaps sally again mm-hmm. very cleverly done from his villain's perspective but um i initially i was finding myself thinking this is kind of stupid sally surely isn't that dumb but she is quite wide-eyed don't you think? Yeah, she is really very much presented as at, at the very least highly naive. For someone involved in mm. basically uh, blackmailing politicians mm. by having nudie photos taken with them, mm. that is a strange character quirk, but I kind of yeah. liked it. Yeah, it kind of worked, and I don't think you needed more really i don't think it needed more it because in every scene that she's in she is presented in that same way and we are she um nancy allen does such a good job of just exhibiting and in, in filling that role she's a completely different character to what she was last week when we saw her in carrie it's a completely different personality and you just believe it it's... And she's a completely different personality again to her most famous role mm. in, in Robocop. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And she does it um, with such deafness and sincerity that it's just like, okay, well, this person, it, she, it, I think it's purposefully done that we never really know kind of what the true relationship is between her and her partner and whether she is actually a cool girl or anything else because it seems like she's just someone who this confident guy comes forward and says hey we're gonna do this we're gonna make money and this is how we're gonna do it she's like okay cool i like money cool because she does she slowly kind of adopts that kind of not necessarily hero worship but um what you say i will do kind of attitude with jack it's almost like she hooks onto people like Mm. um She's a, I wouldn't call her a pathetic figure. She's certainly not that. Um, But she is a, I want to say frail, but it's not quite the right word. But she's not a substantial character in herself in the sense that Mm. she sort of strikes me as the kind of character who needs a strong figure to leech onto Mm. or latch onto and to sort of guide. She's a follower. Mm. She's not a leader. She's not, like you think of a, a plucky police uh, police um, member that she was in in Robocop, like mm-hmm. she's she's kind of got her own. She was she does her own thing, you know. She won't mm-hmm. be told anything necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this one is very much like she sort of initially she's like latched onto Dennis Franz's um, mm-hmm. Manny as like mm-hmm. he kind of he's the provider, and then she's sort of latching onto Jack as kind of her protector, and mm-hmm. then almost at the end 
when um when Burke John Lithgow mm. kidnaps her, yeah. um, he's pretending to be a well-known um, newscaster, and she almost latches onto him, thinking he's you know he's the newscaster, he's a famous person, so he'll yeah. look after me, kind of thing. Um, and her her naivete and willingness to believe in the best of people mm. is kind of it's kind of charming somehow. Yeah, it, it's, it's the least it's cynical fun. part of a very cynical movie. Yeah, yeah, it is. It doesn't present 1980-odd Philadelphia in in any way of kind of hope or optimism, really. It's a it's a, it kind of a presentation that you generally kind of associate with the darker side of New York or Chicago or somewhere like that, where it's sort of like, oh, you either fuck someone up or they fuck you up. It's almost, you could almost imagine, I haven't seen it written anywhere, so this is not me saying this is, was an inspiration, but you could almost imagine this film was inspired by something like Taxi Driver. Mm, that's fair. Uh, just the, the cynical, you know, um, jungle-like nature of a city. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed when watching this movie is um, I would be surprised if you talk to Dan Gilroy, writer and director of Nightcrawler, and if he doesn't mention Blowout as an inspiration, holy shit, because there's a lot of kind of tonal similarity to it. And particularly, um, I notice very strong similarities between Jake Gyllenhaal's character in that movie, um, Lewis, and John Travolta's Jack. They, they even kind of look kind of similar, but whereas um, Jake Gyllenhaal's Louis is much more out for himself. John Travolta's Jack is a wounded angel, I guess you could say, considering what we learn about him having been in the, the um, in the police force and him still carrying the burden of regret for a mistake that wasn't really his. It was just a technical issue that caused the problem and caused the death. Um, but the stylism of Nightcrawler just really rung out to me. So like, holy shit, yeah. Um, I must say, I found that a very overrated film, but I can see your point. Mm. Um, you're right. But I, I think I don't quite see the same, the same but as closeness between Gyllenhaal. I always thought Gyllenhaal might have more in common with Burke, frankly. Gyllenhaal struck me as a psychopath in that film. Um, yeah, he's good, man. Um, he's literally, yeah, some, 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 he looked uh, a bit like John, a young John Travolta. You bring up a good point. Uh, what I what I enjoy particularly one of one of the other things I particularly enjoyed about this film, I enjoyed many things, um, was that I kind of feel like they wouldn't care to go as deep today or or often, mm. even in the past. Like mm. a, a lesser filmmaker wouldn't have gone as deep into his characters. Mm. Wouldn't have got as much character behind him. I don't think we would have got that police subplot about John Travolta, maybe from a lesser filmmaker and a lesser writer might've just gone, he's a sound recordist. He works in movies. Do you need to know more? Yeah. You, that's enough, right? Like we know he's an audio expert. He can fuck around with tapes and figure out, you know, he Mm -hmm. can, he works in films. He can reanimate the photos used in a newspaper and sync it up to his audio and find out, Oh, actually it wasn't an accident. Somebody shot the tire out. Yeah. Um, but just that extra, like, we don't get a lot of that police subplot. It's, you know, one sort of five-minute conversation. And it kind of adds so much depth yeah. to John Travolta's character. And it explains 
some other parts of the films as well where the police are quite hostile towards him. Mm, exactly, in, again, yeah. in a lesser thriller, you might just go, oh, they're corrupt, you know, which is kind of boring. You yeah. know, like, we've seen corrupt police a lot, but, like, they're not necessarily, well, they are probably corrupt, but they just <laughs> fucking don't like this guy because he's a rat. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... What it reminded me of was mm. that scene in Jaws where we're all sitting around a table and Robert Shaw tells a story about the USS Indianapolis mm. and the, the sharks and, you know, all that kind of thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, it seems like it really doesn't actually add anything to the storyline, right? Like, yeah. I mean, yes, it's about sharks, but would there be, yeah, we already know he's a shark expert. He hunts sharks, yeah. but like, that it just informs on the character to his character about yeah. why he is the way he is. Mm -hmm. Why does he hunt sharks? Do we yeah. really need to know why he hunts sharks? Don't yeah. really. But that's what <laughs> elevates shark jaws beyond just a regular run of a mill mm -hmm. monster mm -hmm. film, for want of a better term. Yeah, to something truly spectacular. I think the little bits like this elevate this beyond your standard run of the mill Hitchcock ripoff. Absolutely agree. And uh, we've. We've talked about um, a lot of bits, but let's talk about John Travolta as Jack in this because this movie hangs on him and he does really well with this. He's, He's a really... people forget, and this is what I think Hollywood forgot. The guy mm. can act. Mm -hmm. Like he did some, like obviously, Grease. Was that before or after this? I think it was before this. Oh, I don't remember. Um, but you know, he hadn't done this is very early in his career. He was probably at this type point in time in his career, best this known was for, after Greece. He would have been best known probably for Greece, mm -hmm. um, which was maybe a couple of years before this. Uh, 78, um, so only three years. So, Saturday Night Fever and Greece were probably what he was best known for. And before that, it would definitely have been Welcome Back, Cotter, mm -hmm. um, which was a TV comedy, a really shitty one, by the way, in case you've never seen it. I mean, some people might have remembered him from Carrie, but it was a pretty small role in Carrie. Mm -hmm. uh, so Saturday Night Fever and Greece were, at least I know Saturday Night Fever was a big hit. I've seen Greece was a big hit at the time as well. I um, so. Yeah, but sometimes, like, you see films, like, if you, if you were yeah. to look at a film like Labyrinth, for example, mm -hmm. if you, you're a, a Gen Z, you might, and you come across Labyrinth, you, the way Gen Xers talk about it, you might imagine it must have been a really big hit at the time. It must have been a big deal that people are still talking about it mm -hmm. almost 40 years later. Mm -hmm. It, it. it wasn't a hit. It was a complete flop Yeah. Um, at the box office, but it just sort of grew on um, box office. Um, sorry, I'm going off topic, which never happens. Oh, okay. um, but like, uh, I'm assuming Greece was big <laughs> at the time, and it just didn't become one of those things that was on TV 400 million times and people loved it. But yeah. So you're talking basically musicals, mm. musical comedies, musical dramas, or romantic musicals are kind of the thing he was best known for mm -hmm. at this point in time his career, really. Welcome yeah. Back, Cotter only ended in 1979. Mm -hmm. um, so to actually cast someone like Travolta in no, a very serious thriller mm. would have been, uh, I mean, obviously he would have been bankable because his name was out there, so that's probably what did it, but it mm. would have been an interesting choice. It's a little bit like um, casting Hugh Jackman as Wolverine all those yeah. years ago because he was best known for musical comedy yeah. at the time. I mean, he certainly didn't have the hits that Travolta did, but... A bit of a risk, a bit of an unknown. I remember when um, Keanu Reeves got cast in Speed and everyone was like, whoa, hang on a second. Like, isn't this yeah. guy mainly do comedy? You know, um, he was Bill and Ted, it's, it's, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and even, even looking at Travolta's career, after this, he did Staying Alive, which was a flop. Um, he did a bunch of stuff with Olivia Newton-John. He did the movie Perfect. Look who's talking, he's probably the next hit. 
Yeah, and then look who's talking. Yeah, that's eight years after this. Yeah. Um, and then, and then after that, you're probably cutting through, to, you're probably going through to, to Pulp Fiction. Fiction. Yeah. Five years after that. If yeah. I'm not including the sequels to Look Who's Talking. No. Um, so it, it's, I guess it's understandable in the sense he did, he had a lot of flops in there. Yeah. But um, it's, it's uh, I'm a Tarantino fanboy here, but it is just so like him to go, yes, I love that film you were in 40, 30, 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, like, I, but he's the kind of guy who seems to understand that a great performance like that doesn't come out of it come out of thin air. Mm. You know, that comes out of being the right director with the right material, working mm. with the right actor. And yeah, Quentin for you know, again, I am a fanboy, but nobody can deny he's a genius in getting incredible performances out of actors. Like, you know, Ooh, yeah. the amount of people who've won Academy Awards working with him, I think demonstrates that. Mm-hmm. Um and he he's he revives and creates careers. John Travolta, um Samuel Jackson owes a fair bit to his career to uh, him. Was a guy who won for Jackie Brown. I can't remember his name, but he won an Academy Award. Or was nominated at least. Robert, Robert Forster. Yeah, Robert Forster. Um, no one had heard of Christoph Waltz before. Before no. Inglorious Bastards. Detriment because he's a very well established European um, actor, but still brought him into the the mainstream for sure. So uh, I think that's maybe I'm guessing. I don't obviously. Oh, I don't know mm. Quinn. I'd love to meet you, Quinn, but you know, um, <laughs> he lives in Israel now, so there's always that. But like, it's it seems to be that what he does. He goes, no, he was amazing in that. I know he could be amazing again if he gets the right material. Mm-hmm. And you know he seems to have this, this innate ability to go this role, this actor. Yep. Um, and I, I can see exactly what it, he was. And you have a good thing for him, I guess, as well. He was probably cheap. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, yeah. But um, you know, bringing it back to Blowout, this is a um, a great nuanced performance that, as we alluded to, going through his career. He'd not really done anything, certainly not to this depth of character in anything else. It was about so like, okay, this is we are selling this movie on your showmanship. So you gotta dance, you gotta sing, you gotta look pretty. And in this one, he's a handsome man, but it's all about him being a bit of an odd duck and um just being put in this increasingly escalating scenario where he is kind of permanently out of his depth in every way that just has that heart of gold that's trying to drive him forwards to save the girl what did you make of the end i was like i was a bit taken aback by so super spoiler here if you genuinely think this film looks amazing and it is and you Mm -hmm. don't want to know anymore Mm. skip ahead 10 minutes from now or put us on mute okay so Sally dies at the hands of Burke in the final yep. confrontation. In yep. doing so, in, during that confrontation, Jackie's able to kill Burke as well. Apparently, mm-hmm. very little repercussion, but you know that's what happens when you catch someone killing somebody, I guess. Um, but he's able to because because um, Sally is wired because she's yeah. wired at the time. He's able to record her final scream um, mm. as she's being attacked by by Burke. Mm. He then uses that we come back right back around at the start of a film where we, we have the, the slasher movie where he was deeply unsatisfied with the girl in the showers scream. So he subs in Sally's death scream into mm. his B grade horror picture. Yeah. 
I'm like, so, I don't know about that. That's a it's a tasteless way to end the film. So it's part of the the legend of the rule of three of comedy. And you know, the movie opens up with that pathetic scream and then laughing about it and joking and saying it because it's just this kind of stupid like no one would scream like that kind of scream and then in the middle of the film he's still being hounded about this and we get a shot where there's two women in a sound booth pulling each other's hair still trying to get this scream and then finally the the scream is delivered because it's real it's a real scream it's a real death scream and i kind of get it in a narrative i, I get the structure of a joke but, but at the, the same film's time, not a comedy we're not yeah. laughing very much throughout the film yeah and it it's it's a it's an odd twist on that rule like i've been um listening to neil gaiman talking about uh, on his masterclass, and he likened it to something that terry pratchett the author used to do where it's called called having a sherbet lemon and every now and then you find it and it's um kind of tangy and sweet and it just randomly pops up and it's just this odd thing that come appears in the story and but you have to pay it off at the end you have to you have to give them a reward and it's it's a weird kind of ideology of having that mentality here but it's going okay instead of it being a joke we are going to twist it to be the most torturous thing like, okay that's interesting but if you want us to empathize with jack why would jack willingly put that in the movie and it seems very exploitative yeah, it doesn't fit with the way he responds to it, where he's hearing it. Because like, if he didn't want to hear it again, he wouldn't have put it in a fucking movie. So it's it's a weird choice that it creates a really dark, bleak, arguably brilliant end. And like I was talking about at the start with the crescendo of the, the noise and the, the fact that he is, you know, when he's on the bridge... Um, filming the um, the sound, he's got a smile on his face. He's happy. He's just enjoying. It. He's at peace. And now at a position where where intimate sound like that causes him pain, that's a beautiful arc for him to be on. But it's still it it's a betrayal of his character. It doesn't quite fit, does it? Mm. Mm. It doesn't destroy a film. It doesn't really no. ruin my enjoyment of it. I just found that a very odd choice. Mm. at the end of a film yeah if you were making yeah. this as some sort of comedy if mm. it was like an action comedy like a hudson or hawk-esque caper you know like then that might or if and you know maybe maybe a less obscure reference a knives out style caper you know like then maybe that would work but it's even it's then, out of character still like oh fuck what the, what the shit and maybe no, it's it's a it, it's the more I think about it, the more of it, it's a betrayal of the character that is Jack that we have been shown and we have seen. And even if they were to kind of tack on a bit at the end, where a corrupt CIA official or something um, knows that that's the sound, and they um, arrest him, trying to use it as a cover up or something like that, it still wouldn't fit because. He is the one who had that tape. He's the only one who could have used it in the movie. It just betrays that character. 
anyway, I <laughs> didn't, didn't didn't hurt me. Didn't hurt the film. It was just strange. I yeah. I'm actually I, I mean it's my choice, but I'm very glad I chose it because mm-hmm. it was actually a very enjoyable for a Monday morning for me. It was quite a pleasure. After some mm. of the shit I had to watch in the weekend, you'll hear about a little later on. Um, it was it was a real. I love it when we get these little finds. I think we had it again mm. a while ago. When we watched Thief, the James. Yeah, Carr. that was a real mm. one that I'd never seen before. But it, you never hear about. It. No one talks nope. about it. No, nope. but um, it, it was well worth uh, our mm. time. And um, I'm very excited to hear about where you take us next. Well, we are going to follow John Travolta because why not? And I am in control of this car. And we're going to go to um, 1996. We are going to go to an action adventure thriller, as IMDb says. This is the John Travolta, Christian Slater, Samantha Mathis, and Delroy Lindo starring Broken Arrow, directed by John Woo. Yes. Oh, no. It's a really we, bad movie. Exactly. We have spoiled ourselves with some classics recently. And I think it's time to go back and just see John Woo is a legendary action director. So this is where I'm, the rot set in for John Woo. Huh? This is almost when the rot started to set in. This is like was face off, I think was a year or so after this. Yes. So that's part of why I'm kind of going this direction because I'd like to see if maybe I can tempt you to go international, maybe one of his classic things like Hard Boiled or something like that. I've seen some of that stuff. Believe it or not, I also saw it when I was studying social <laughs> studies at university. And the reason um, why they get you to watch them. He didn't. I've seen them. He didn't fuck around when he was making his movies mm-hmm. in Hong Kong. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, uh, it did not translate particularly well to Hollywood a lot of the time. Most of the Apart time, from, say Face Off. Face Off was. Face Off was great. Yeah. But um, for those who are not initiated in the way of Broken Arrow, terrorists steal nuclear warheads from the U.S. military, but don't count on a pilot and park ranger spoiling their plans. Yeah. If that isn't, isn't a B-movie plot, I don't know what is. This movie's shit, but um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you said, as you said, we have been a little highbrow of late, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this um, this direct. Uh, is next but look maybe it's been about 25 i've obviously been i think i saw this movie as part of a movie marathon mm. in 1996 along with courage under fire or an independence day or something oh, like God, that yeah um yeah. so maybe it's better at not at two in the morning i was tempted to go to michael but I'm glad you didn't that's also not good exactly there's there's reasons but, um, yeah, I just figured this one has got a nice few diff- different directions that you can go with the actors involved with the director as well. So I'll, see, I'll be interested to see where you go from there. Very well. Yes. Now, you, did, you, said, that, um, you said the phrase, we've been doing highbrow, it's time to go lowbrow. Um, shall we switch and talk about Netflix's Spiderhead? Let's. <laughs> I randomly ran across this the other day. It was number two in the country. Mm-hmm. As the mm-hmm. most watched things in the country, mm-hmm. um, and I thought, ah, I haven't even heard of this. Mm-hmm. Um, There's theory... a reason why it wasn't heard of until <laughs> now. My because... theory is that Chris Hemsworth, outside mm-hmm. of the role as Thor, has never done anything remotely memorable. I would argue the best non-Thor movie he's done would mm-hmm. either be Ghostbusters 2016. And it's well known what I think of that direct. Yeah. Or 
2009 Star Trek in which he's in it for five minutes. Oh, stick of the knives into the Melbourne-born actor. I like Chris as an actor. I think he's capable of more. Yes. But I think anything he's done outside of Marvel has been utterly forgettable. Um, Maybe Bad Times at the El Royale. I don't remember him much about that. But... He was quite good in Rush as James Hunt. And well, Cabin in the Woods. He was good in Cabin in the Woods, yeah, I guess. Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, that was um, before you did. It's, 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 you're, you're scraping through, right? Like, yeah. This film supports my theory. That is very fair. So, in the near future, convicts are offered the chance to volunteer <laughs> as medical subjects to shorten their sentence. One such subject for a new drug capable of generating feelings of love begins questioning the reality of his emotions. Hmm. This is based on a short story, Escape from Spiderhead, which appeared mm-hmm. in The New Yorker. It is directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who I think directed the um, new Top Gun film. Correct. That, this is exactly why this movie came out. Now, right. Maverick is getting all of the money, which Miles Teller also co-stars in, is directed by Joseph Kaczynski, and we are less than a month away from the new Thor, which just so happens to star Chris Hemsworth. So this is Netflix cashing in. Um a great cast is Chris Hemsworth, Miles Teller, Journey Smollett, who I know her name for some reason. She um, really impressed me because she was in uh, Lovecraft Country and she uh, was yes. also in um, Harley Quinn and the Emancipate. Uh, or the Emancipate. Uh, she was the Black Canary, that's right. Yeah. She was and one she... of the few highlights of that film, yes. along with um, a friend of the show, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I wish she was a friend of the show. We both enjoy her work. Yes. Uh, Brain Dead. I think was the favorite. Um, I will forget that thing reboot she did. Um, And I think we are forgetting the biggest name in this film by a stretch. Former WWE superstar (laughs) and World Wrestling All-Stars champion Nathan Jones as Rogan. I don't think we were uh, accidentally forgetting him. (laughs) He was in Troy. Yes. Killed by Brad Pitt in the first five minutes. Um, Anyway, so what did you make of this? I thought that there was an interesting nugget of an idea here that clearly should never have been expanded beyond a short story. And it was weirdly all over the shop with its theme. Like Chris Hemsworth is supposed to be almost, I I feel like he kind of took a bit of inspiration for his role as like a combination of Steve Jobs, Tony Stark, and just an odd, charismatic weirdo. Because I, I kind of had the tech bro thing happening. Like, yeah. Sort of, a, like, sort of channeling Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor meets mm. Jesse Eisenberg's Mark Zuckerberg yeah. meets Steve Jobs. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a weird medley. And it could have worked if this had been done as a comedy because Chris Hemsworth actually has got good comedic timing. Um. But this isn't, at least not the second half of the movie, because it feels like a movie of two halves. You are int- we are introduced to this notion, and it's definitely played for the, the lols with, so like, oh, yes, he's going to be sitting in a room with an abrasive bitch who's beautiful, who any red-blooded man would want to fuck. Um, it's just, unfortunately, you got to get past that attitude kind of thing, which is like, okay, 
don't know if that really flies in modern society, but let's see what you do with this. And then the the polar opposite of that, where Mars Teller's character, um, what's his name in it, uh, Jeff, he is put in the same room, and you know that it's going to be pushing the same thing. But then, essentially, the quintessential stereotypical looking crack whore comes in, and it's like, okay, yeah, I can see what this is going to be, and this is right. Are you are you you're you're playing this for for laughs? Okay. And then the story evolves and you've got the the subtle romance that grows between um, Jeff and Lizzie. And you start to learn a little bit about um, uh, Chris Hemsworth's Abnesty, which is just a stupid name anyway. And, and then it just keeps on just trying to twist it and twist it and twist it. And Joseph Kaczynski, I'm sorry for anyone who loves his stuff. He is not a great director um cinematography he is he knows how to shoot something that looks beautiful we um reviewed for for chain movie um only the brave again with miles teller in it it was Um, fine it was fine it wasn't great um it was more of a compelling story because it was based on real events um and and oblivion it was fine it looks beautiful but it looked good the story was just fine and top gun maverick looks amazing but it's probably going to be a very bland stereotypical story overall crossed 900 million worldwide today yeah biggest tom cruise movie to date which just feels weird my mind i cannot imagine this film is as good as people say it is but we will find out in time when i can see it for free Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, i don't really want to give my money to it no or at least cheap i don't want to go to the cinema to see it yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think I don't think much of his direction. And you make an excellent point. Let's take a, if you take a look at the writers here. Mm. So it's based on a short story by a guy who wrote it for the New Yorker. So probably fairly highfalutin as your um, standard mm-hmm. um, New Yorker writers would be. And Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick are the writers, and they look like they work together quite a bit. And the films that they've been responsible for that are any good: Deadpool, Deadpool Two, Zombieland. Um, these guys, uh, I mean, I'm not going to mention the films that weren't any good, including G.I. Joe Retaliation. Blah. Or Six Underground. <laughs> um, terrible movies. Yep. Um, let's not forget the real highlight of the jewel in the crown of their career, Cruel Intentions 3. Um, I bet you didn't know there was a Cruel Intentions 3. I, I did didn't not. know there was a Cruel Intentions 3. Um, I choose my own reality, and therefore there is only one Cruel Intentions movie. <laughs> um these are the kind of guys who write action comedies. Mm. So if you hire these guys and you've got this script and you've got Chris Hemsworth, yeah, this is not action comedy. You go, action comedy should be where we go because, like, you got four, yeah. we got a whole bunch of ingredients here that say yeah. action comedy. Yeah, but no, they played it straight. Yeah, and at least or at least partially straight. You're right. The first half, I mean, it's not straight laughs. It's kind of no. It's kind of like this is kind of funny. Yeah, like, Kind it's of incidental way. comedy. It's not actual gags. They're not paying no. off jokes. It's kind of amusing. It's lighthearted, I should say. Yeah. Um, and then you move into the second half, and we just have the, the heel turn from the tech bro. And mm-hmm. by the way, he's far too pretty to be the tech bro. Um, yeah. There's no tech bro on earth who is as pretty as Chris Hemsworth. Mm, um, I'm sorry. 
Jimmy Paul Giamatti or someone like that as a tech bro. Uh, like, um, like yours is profiling now, Trav. <laughs> if, if a tech bro as pretty as him, I don't know about it. Um, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy that on one hand. Like, hey, you're too pretty to be a tech bro. But if any guy mm. just goes full beast mode and goes, oh, oh, oh I'm going to kill everybody, um, yeah. kind of thing, and just goes mental. And it's just like a real leap. And mm. I, I kind of liked parts of his first half of the film for him mm. in a sense, like. I mean, obviously, you and I have spent a great deal of time around tech billionaires. It happens when you're as high profile to show. Is. There's a you reason just... why we are the number one trending Twitch program talking about blowout this week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you know, but like most people don't get to spend time with the Bezoses and Zuckerbergs of the world, but like they don't. You know, they they strike me as a little bit like this sometimes. Like, mm. I'm your mate. I'm your friend. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not trying to steal your data. You know, like it's I'm yeah. just a regular guy. Mark Zuckerberg. I'm just a regular human boy. At, you know, <laughs> like I wear sweatshops, sweatshirts too. You know, like I'm just one of you. I'm a real person who just lucked out, mm-hmm. <laughs> created the mm-hmm. thing that's destroying democracy. It's a sex um, bot sentient. Now it's disturbing. So you know, I, I liked that about it. It was like he was just trying to be like, trying to ingratiate. I'm just one of you guys, the bosses. Ugh, you know the bosses. The yeah. bosses say, you know, like. And I kind of liked how his character was yeah. doing that. But he yeah. sort of threw all that away in the second half and just went full to moustache twirling evil. Yeah. And it's, you are kind of, we're kind of fed the line that it's because of his growing addiction to the drugs that he's experimenting on, but it's never properly cleared up. And at the same time, the amount of trouble that is caused by the housing of this thing, which it's probably about the size of like something like that, just strapped onto their back. And it's like this soft, soft case. It's like, really? That doesn't break every time someone sits down in a chair. It breaks when a story needs them to break. Yeah. Or, you know, we've kind of shown that these people can't take them off, so they're sleeping with them on and they don't break during sleep. What? Don't, don't question the plot elements. <laughs> I so can't I'm, help it. I, I'm, just, I'm just conscious we have a full show. I'm guessing then mm. you didn't like this very much. I mean, it's not the worst movie that Netflix have made. I mentioned Six Underground before. <laughs> um, but oh, it's the whole raft of Adam Sandler films we could mention. Yeah, it's it's not a good film. It's not a bad film. It's just something that's there purposely to go, kind of grab people who are like, oh, I can't go to the cinema to see Top Gun. Oh, Joseph Kaczynski did this and it's only just coming out. Cool, I'll check it out. <gasps> Chris Hemsworth, yeah, he's Thor. I remember that. I remember this he has the If you were just, If you was a dickering that was like, show me a Netflix movie. Siri, show me a Netflix movie. Mm-hmm. This would be it. Big stars. Yeah. You know, half a story, mm-hmm. up and coming director, decent effects, something to put on the TV while you're checking your phone for an hour and a half. Like that's kind of what this felt like to me. I know some people have said to me they really hated it and they thought it was awful. I don't know that I would say it was awful, but it really, really wasn't good. Mm-hmm. It was really just forgettable. Yeah. If this is what Netflix are gonna put up, yeah. If this is their answer to Kenobi, to mm-hmm. Marvel shows, to mm-hmm. Game of Thrones on HBO Max to Lord of the Rings on Amazon. This is what they're going to throw up as an answer to that. They're mm-hmm. in trouble. 
And to yeah. date, this is, is what they're throwing up. Yeah. And frankly, their, their movies are either they believe in them and they will invest in them, such as um, Alfonso Corona's uh, Roma, which got a lot of Oscar push a couple of years ago, The Irishman by Martin Scorsese, or their TV, their highbrow TV shows like House of Cards when that first came out, Stranger Things, uh, The New Black. Yeah, or just the new black. Otherwise, it's sort of like, yeah, sure, we'll give you twenty million. You make a movie, we'll put it out, see what happens. And that isn't doing them any any good. Look, I mean, on the surface, it might look like we get X number of streaming hours for cheap because mm-hmm. I don't know, this film probably didn't cost that much. Um, but I think in the long run, it's damaging their brand. Like mm-hmm. you think about, like, oh, you know, we've got five streaming services to pick from now. Mm-hmm. I really like that new Yellow Jacket show on Net, on Paramount Plus. Ah, like anyone subscribing to Paramount Plus, um, Apple TV or whatever. But you know, like, and you go, well, what have I seen on Netflix lately that's been good? Mm-hmm. I doubt this will come to mind. Yeah, it's it, 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 the only thing that people are talking about positively on Netflix right now is Stranger Things season four, and you're still going to have to wait another week and a half before the final ep- two episodes of season four, and then it's going to be at least a year before season five, which is they've already said is the final season and they don't, they're certainly not started hyping anything up as the next show that they're going to be pushing out or, um, you know, they're always talking about movies and stuff, but their movie brand is shit. It's okay at best. It's big yeah. name guy, big name actors and directors in very yeah. average films or average to lame, average to bad. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, so disappointing. A waste of talent. A waste of an idea. Um, it looks good though. It looks good. Yeah. It's pretty. It, yeah, Joseph Kaczynski is kind of like Zack Schneider, where he knows how to make a film look pretty. Doesn't know how to actually direct actors and doesn't know how to control a story but it looks pretty speaking of pretty i think mm. it's time for the trek respective <gasps> the trek respective the two very attractive people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well let me, let me just tee that up Holmes, kirk everyone's in there so they're all pretty all <laughs> the attractive people we got it Greetings and salutations, and welcome to episode three of the Trek Respective, where I torture her, Michelle, with one of the classic Trek films. Well, they're classic for now. We're going to move into the new ones later. This is the third um, film we've watched. That's obviously episode three. Uh, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Um, and I think this is a momentous occasion. Now, I think you'd be very surprised at what happened uh, this weekend when um, Michelle sat, sat through uh this film uh this film was made in 1984 was directed by leonard nimoy it is one of the more maligned films in the series a meta score of 56 an audience score on imdb of 6.6 um kramer from seinfeld felt it was one of the better uh mm-hmm. trek films but uh generally speaking rafa khan has a better reputation you didn't like rafa khan terribly much did you no it felt very campy in a bad way like, don't get me wrong, I like a good campy film. I mean, you know, you can't go past um, Flash Gordon. But, yeah, no, I felt 
this was just moving paint by numbers, moving pieces type of filmmaking. That's and you did enjoy the cats-esque outfits of Carl and his crew, I think, and that was probably the highlight for you. Well, you know, you know, you're in trouble when I'm talking about the set design and the, uh, you know, um, costumes. So if I'm looking at that or the lighting, mm, the lighting was interesting. You know, you're in trouble. <laughs> So the storyline of this film, Admiral Kirk and his bridge crew risk their careers stealing the decommissioned USS Enterprise to return to a restricted Genesis planet to recover Spock's body. What did you think? I don't know what's happening. I don't know if it's Stockholm Syndrome at this point. I don't know whether it's I'm in for two now and I am in for another nine or what. No, wait, is it 13? 13. Yes, so I'm in for another 10. Where I've just kind of gone, well, you know, this is this is happening. Just submit to the process. <laughs> but I actually was not bored at any point, and I was emotionally with the film, and I wanted to know what happened. You were quite. And engrossed. I thought they did a decent job. They were quite. You were quite engrossed in this one, weren't you? Yeah, I was like, oh, and it's like, oh, so this is what happens when you uh, get used to your captors. You just give into it. <laughs> you actually start to kind of enjoy the minutiae of it, the small things. So I actually, was, sorry, go. No, I was going to say, there's no, no um, improvement in storytelling. It was just purely, you know, bloody mindedness on your behalf to find something to enjoy. No, no, there was that. Look, this is the first time we actually see his decisions catch up with him proper, right? There's way too much exposition in the previous ones. And this is when we actually see the emotional combination of his recklessness, right? So he's known for being very good, arrogant, um, and also um, impulsive almost, or going against orders. So that's sort of like his vibe. Well, if you remember um, in the last one, he... He got around the Kobayashi Maru test. By yeah, like, exactly. You know, so quite brilliant, you know, compared to his peers and all the rest of it. And so this one, uh, you know, being so reckless cost him his son. Um, and the part, I got, I also got to say, maybe it's also the actors getting used to their role and finding the beats, finding the emotion in the lines. So maybe it's just a case of everyone just getting used to each other, getting used to the role. Um, I mean, they always took it very seriously, which is you've got these kind of, I mean, Shatner feels like he was classically trained, was he? Don't know. Can't, he exudes that, at least at the way he um, pronounces words and how I he I think you're, you're starting to enjoy the um, what we've, we in the Trek community have enjoyed now for um, years and decades. That is the Shatner way of speaking. Well, I have, I have been walking around the house going, well, the cats have seemed to have moved from the bed. I wonder if I'll find them. You know, so I have. Michelle's <laughs> log, date, star date, 2542. Oh, cats I are not eating log. their food again. I've just done Captain's log for the whole week. You can't, take, well, you can't take it seriously when they say Captain's log, by the way. She bursts no. with laughter. Every time there's a uh, someone says Captain's log, because um, it's a nuisance. I have a hernia. It hurts. Nobody listens. <laughs> it's just been taken the piss out of far too many times. Um, Shatner does have a particular way of speaking, and um, I think we all enjoy that. Um, they do do gruesome 
um, animal life quite well. You enjoyed um, the monsters? Yeah, I did enjoy it. I don't usually go for that. That's usually not my thing, but I was sufficiently grossed out by them. Oh, maybe I should um, go the monsters. Oh, they life forms. The other thing I liked was the growing Spock, the every seven minutes growth spurt Spock, which reminded me of V, where the daughter, where Elizabeth, the daughter of Robin, the one who had sex with one of the aliens, gets pregnant and has twins, and one's a little alien baby and the other one's a human baby, but the human baby goes through a reptilian growth spurt when she's like seven years old and all of a sudden goes from being seven to a fully adult woman. Um, and I used to be obsessed with that when I was a kid. Love that. So I kind of saw, it's interesting. That's the other thing I was thinking about this week. Two, two things. One, um, the ideas permeate, permeating in culture at the time. You kind of have one sci-fi doing this and then I don't know if it's, it's not necessarily people copying each other, but drawing inspiration and what are the thoughts about how science is probably dealing with other animals and other species and what they're bringing into our species. So all of that is probably like um, fertilizing all these creative ideas as well. So that's an interesting thing of the 80s. Um, and also, if you think about it, there's you've got Ray oh maybe there's a line you can draw through sort of Reagan-esque eras and a little bit of anti-immigration but the other is like us and we combine to for a new species I don't know maybe something there worth some sort of small mini thesis I'm not sure so I found that interesting the other thing I found really interesting was some things of of their time you know, we are of our time. I always think of Dylan Moran's joke. You know, you want to remain contemporary. Well, I'm alive. How contemporary do you want me to be? Um, you know, we are all temporal beings and so are our cultural artifacts. They're temporal. So I, I kind of think these Star Trek films are a little um, glass case of what being explored at the time culturally and sometimes i can't access it because i didn't access it at the time so i'm coming at coming to it with today's you know thoughts and mores and whatever the hell's going on in the zeitgeist so i think the first two for me were a little bit jarring this one i definitely got into more and i just started thinking about that and i do watch young children please don't judge me and i kind of understood how somebody like a, a boy kid would look at Star Trek and really get that friendship. You know, I'm weird and and kind of not popular, but if I've made a friend, one friend is really loyal, that's that's good enough. So I I took I got a lot out of this film actually. Um speaking about things in the cultural like I just by the way, V is very contemporary to this. The mm -hmm. V series came out a year before this came out. So ah. they are very, very contemporary. Um, that she transforms the second year though not in the um, so yeah I, I don't yeah so very much spiritual contemporaries um mm -hmm. speaking of things of their time you've got no idea you've got to wait and see what's coming in star trek 4 because star trek 4 is the most of, of its time film star trek film ever so made. what is it 1986 1987 i think so it's the most 1987 thing that ever 1987 so it's well at least from a track perspective it's it's of its time but i still think it's enjoyable so it'll be interesting to see if you find it somehow inaccessible because of 
it being very much of the 80s. Um, I found I the emotional beats of this accessible. There's a line, and you're going to remember it for me, that I went, oh, that's such a good line. Um, oh, it was like the, the, our best, we've spilt our best blood or something like that. Um, we've paid the price. Blood you know? kind of thing. Um, but, but the next, I think the next one's actually enjoyable in an 80s kind of way. It's kind of like people would go back and watch, you know, um, I don't know, Mannequin or something, and it's just really 80s, and they enjoy that part of it. Um, interesting casting in this film. We had the great Christopher Lloyd, playing the yes. uh, Klingon uh, commander Crude. What did you what did you make of that? Remember you you once you realized who it was, you were a little bit excited. Oh, he acted his little took us off. Like he was he actually did a really good job. I, you know they took God he does have presence. He fills the screen. He did his role well. Um as of course does Shatner and, and maybe Leonard Nimoy in a more quiet way. Um, but there's a lot to be said of these people who fill the screen, who have presence when they speak, who are good at their craft. So I thought, it, I've actually never seen him in anything outside of Doc Brown, I have to say. So that was interesting to see him um, Very in that role of the villain. Yeah, but it gets tired not being the uh, kindly old scientist. So apparently the story was he didn't really understand how communicators and stuff worked in the Star Trek universe. So he would just shout at the sky, just things, and they'd be like, no, no, you've got the communicator. You can't just shout at the sky and and, and bring you up. But Well, look, who hasn't had that problem with technology? I sometimes shout at the sky. People are like, no, you have to actually click on the computer. And I'm like, what? That's actually a funny storyline. to steal that, you know, like... Um... You had another thought about it. you said here again this week about I, I don't I really don't like the Orville now. It's a complete Star Trek ripoff. It is completely a Star Trek ripoff, and um, I'm a little bit less impressed with it. Having said that, I'm up to, I'm very up to date with the Orville, um, and they are they are little um, episodes where thought, which allow thought experiments. But what the Orville does, right? which the first two films don't quite do successfully, which I also noticed it in the third film that it did successfully, is that you can't have these big lofty ideas and not tether them to a character's arc and emotionality. Because whilst we get lost, as, as and it's just an exercise in thinking which you can't sustain. I mean, unless you can do it, even the documentary series does this. It'll tether it to a person and their emotions. It's not very interesting in, in a 90-minute, two-hour film if it's just a bunch of ideas. This is the thing. As humans, we need to connect to the people or to whatever we see um, in an, an empath, em, empathetic and human way, even if it's in an inanimate object like rocks from... Um, everywhere everything all at once yeah you know but they're being human they're being anthropomorphized which i can't pronounce but i, I think they got the quippiness better for you this time you enjoyed i think a lot of the quips uh, yeah this time, but i kind of thought joss whedon who shall not be named who has broken my heart um might have got been influenced by the quippiness there because i see that as a line to fight like as well I would not be surprised if he grew up, as you sort of said, that weird kid who found something he enjoyed in Trek and 
became that weird, very, very weird and horrible human being adult. And then um, he went all to his talk about Trek, I always think of it as like Star Trek, Star Wars was about individuals. You know, it's about what Luke Skywalker does. It's about what Obi-Wan and those guys, whereas this is about a crew of people. This is a group. This is an ensemble. Well, if you think about it, and this is a very interesting point, you have Star Wars struggling at the moment because it can't break free of that dynasty. And perhaps Star Trek and Orville can go where it can go now further because it's not stuck with a dynasty. Maybe, maybe we'll see there. Certainly. I was listening to your review of Obi One last week and um i haven't looked at any of it because i i have absolutely no appetite for any more star wars offerings from disney i've mm. done my time i've done nine films i'm out um <laughs> you know having said that i we disagree thoroughly on the last three films in, in which that that eighth one i particularly love maybe that will be a post series we've had some discussions if people like the trek perspective we might take it in a new direction after these 13 films we've had some ideas about where they might go um maybe the uh maybe the star wars series will be a logical extension but we've been naughty the last few weeks and we've gone well over time um we, we said we kind of keep it under five minutes that's obviously impossible it's far too interesting <laughs> uh, talking to michelle to keep it under five minutes keeping it under an hour is challenging um so uh i get to get cut to the point and go how many lockdowns you gave the last one a five out of five the first one was a three out of ten so five out of ten three out of ten what star trek three research talk with you i'm vacillating between a six and a seven out of uh no sorry i'm vacillating between so we did it the opposite way didn't we you can just go the simple way this time it's probably overly confusing no, no, I like being overly confusing. That's my, that's my, that's my deal. That's the thing. It's all I've got. That my sweet, that's sweet all I've got and my sweet, sweet style. Um, so I'm tempted to give it, I'm, I'm torn between three out of four, three and four out of 10 lockdowns. Cause I, should we go three and a half? Three and a half. Let's go through the middle. So we'll go six out of a half out of 10. Hmm. Because I still have a reticence with Star Trek. Um, and the, the reticence is I have, this didn't call to me at all in, in all my time on this planet, on this planet, <laughs> it hasn't called to me at all. And so it's, it's only been a movement by the, uh, trickery of, of fate trickery. that I find myself in this position. So uh, you'll be richer for it at the end. Yeah. So thank you, Michelle for enduring another one of these. Uh, if you want to find out about what the palette cleanser was, stay around on the podcast we'll be talking about it soon and my <laughs> lord lordy 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 unfortunately it wasn't rocky four we couldn't get that done um but the uh the power cleanser du jour as it was was um yeah it was it was something something uh, else of its time Let's something else of its time way. and it was it was a it was a whole thing so stick around for that uh thank you michelle we'll be back next week with episode four of a trek perspective to talk about star trek four uh i didn't forget what the uh the subtitle of that one is the search for peace or some bullshit i can't remember um but that one will be very interesting because that's any very very different kind of star trek film uh thank you michelle thank you have a lovely and night back to you Speezy. <laughs>
There we go. The Trek Respective, episode three in the can. Apologies is... again. I am trying to keep them shorter. I will work at it. I'll work at it some more. There, it's okay. Long, we uh, we pride ourselves on be staying on target. <laughs> now, now we did um um we did we, you and I were chatting in there mm -hmm. that uh, in which, while we were, we were talking, but unfortunately Michelle has not had an opportunity to see mm -hmm. uh, Christopher Lloyd in Clue. Mm -hmm. Or more importantly, Suburban Commando starring Hulk Hogan, but you know, yep. we won't hold that yep. against it. Disappointing, but I, because we haven't had an audience recommendation for a little while, I'm putting the recommendation that if we can, it's not a must, if we can, watch Clue. Depends on how easy it is to find. In the uh, meantime, did, uh, did you, because we mm -hmm. did talk about it a little bit in that, in the trick perspective, you mm. watched the final episode of Obi Wan, I think. I have, yes. And um, it is the event finale, as it says on Disney Plus, for the story of Obi-Wan Kenobi, which, <clears throat> without going into spoilers, because it's still the same seven hours or something since released or whatever, um, I won't talk about spoilers. What I will talk about is general themes and thoughts on the series itself. So you've watched what? all of them now, yes? I have seen all of them, yes. One, it is always a delight having Ewan McGregor on my screen. He is a wonderful actor. He was pretty much the saving grace for every single one of the trilogy movies um, that he was part of. And I want to see him in more stuff. Um, I do not want to see him in any more of the Harley Quinn movies, if they do any more, because... Well, he was killed off, so it's probably not going to happen. That is no guarantee, and that is one of the things that watching Obi-Wan Kenobi will also attest to. Okay. Um, if you are a Jedi, if you get stabbed once, you will die. If you are anybody else, stabbed once, you'll be fine. He won't even have bandages on. <laughs> Silly <laughs> Jedi. What a weird... Achilles heel for a Jedi and like like the Jedi must never do sewing because that would be the most dangerous thing so like oh shit oh. <laughs> but Obi-Wan Kenobi takes place in a point of nebulous nothingness 10 years after the end of um Revenge of the Sith we have got as we talked about both of us find young Leia, the most annoying child actor since Jake Lloyd. And it is following the story of Obi-Wan Kenobi essentially being pulled out of self-imposed exile, where he is uncomfortably watching a young Luke Skywalker grow and has a very um, combative relationship, shall we say, with um, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. Um, and Leia gets kidnapped, and then hijinks ensue as Obi-Wan Kenobi tries to save her. And, of course, in that story, he is a man that is haunted by what he had to do to his brother, his friend, his Padawan, Anakin Skywalker, slash Darth Vader. And that story comes back to haunt him in all the ways that Disney love to do in a way of promoting and self-promoting. It's like, oh, yes, we're bringing Hayden Christensen back. We've got James L. Jones doing the voice. We've got the classic stuff. It's going to be emotional storytelling. It's going to be fabulous. It's going to be huge. 
It really wasn't. It, this is a story that telegraphed every potential punch that it might have had far too soon. I mean, come on. The opening for the whole series was the attack on the Jedi Temple where you see kids running a um, Jedi younglings, as they still choose to refer to them as, running around trying to su uh, survive Order 66. And particularly they see Anakin Skywalker going in there and slashing down kids. That's not going to have anything to do with any of the new Force-sensitive characters that we see on the screen in this show at all. No. It's something that is so painfully obvious, I didn't need to use my superpower. Um, and it ends up becoming this weird, stupid thing in the finale... that kind of theme is brought up again and it's used as the trying to use it as this big emotional thing it's like wait what what why why is this character even doing that at this point because uh, we've just at the, at the end of episode five we were just told that they were doing something else which was actually kind of an interesting story but they completely underdeveloped it throughout the whole thing so it came kind of came out of nowhere and if they had actually nurtured that as the story and instead of having an Obi-Wan Kenobi story, have um, this character as the main focus and just have the character of Obi-Wan Kenobi pop in every now and then, it would have been a far more interesting story because of what, what their plan was and what their intention was. But then in episode five, it's all just shit. And this, it sums it up perfectly because this story has nothing on the line. We know exactly how everything's going to end up. Um, the Grand High Inquisitor, who's this pale-faced guy who's first introduced and he's really scary character in the Clone Wars stories or um, Star Wars Rebels, I think it is. Um, and Star Wars Rebels is set after the events of the Obi-Wan Kenobi story. So it's like, all right, well, he got stabbed. So yeah, he's going to survive. And he's a bad guy. So yes, one stab doesn't kill him. And we already know that Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader both survive any potential fights that they have. So there's no genuine threat of danger to either of them in that regard. We know that Leia is going to survive because it's Leia. We know that Luke is going to survive. We know that Owen and Baru are going to survive because they die later on. There is nothing at stake here. And so this show amounts to a zero sum. And it's not even a, like I've talked about the, um, the production value of it. It looks quite good. But again, this is another Disney owned property that in the last episode, it's all about um, bright lights and a lightsaber fight in the dark between um, between characters and it's like okay was there a sky beam no there's no sky beam oh, disappointed there is no sky beam but it's it's just full it, it's a waste of nothing and just a waste of time because there is, like I say, there is there is nothing at all in this show that is new that we do not know already know the outcome of. So there is no emotional investment in any of the characters. It is pure, hey, 
we want to just revisit that because there is this growing groundswell for the love of the prequel trilogy and we want to do something to serve them. No. And I've been talking to people at work about this. And what is the opening couple of words of the title crawl of Star Wars movies, Travis? Uh, it's been a while, right? Um, a long, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far right. away, yes. Mm -hmm. So it's a galaxy. That is not a small thing, a galaxy. And we have seen multiple galaxies in the Star Wars universe. But apparently in this one, the only stories that matter are the ones that are still highly connected to the Skywalker saga. No, just no. There are gugaplex of people and characters and potentials that you could go out there and do. And why is every single fucking one of them? Why is the bad guy always human? The good guy always human? There are so many other interesting fucking races. Do something different. Tell a compelling fucking story. Tell a, tell a story that actually has value and reason to fucking watch it. There is nothing. This is empty calories of TV. It's not even, it's not even like eating a bag of chips. <laughs> it's like, oh, at least it tastes like fake cheese that has mild association in my brain with something. This tastes like nothing. And the reason they do it is there's no risk. Mm -hmm. It's because the fanboys just keep eating it up and they do mm -hmm. not demand anything better. I have friends tonight who posted photos of themselves mm. on Facebook crying over the last episode. Um, In a good way? I, I, wow. Legit. So, I'll tell you something. I want friend to, of, yeah. If, if they're getting emotional about this, I would love to be in a relationship with them because I could take them on a, an emotional roller coaster <laughs> with no fucking effort. I think I, I'm not sure that's the right idea here about either relationships or anything. It's not how any of this works. But, you know, um, I will say this friend of mine is kind of become my own personal Kevin Smith, who just uh, loves everything, right? Mm -hmm. Anything, it's anything remotely geeky mm. in the in a fandom. He he likes. He just loves all of it. You like, yeah. You realize when you love everything, your recommendation means nothing. Yeah. By the same rationale, the fact I hate everything probably makes it just as bad. But at um, least when you say something that you do like, it's like, oh, okay. Whereas if you say something was shit, you still can't really trust it if everything is always great. It's like, okay, well, it's, you, you you like trash. So if you don't like it, it probably means it's actually kind of good. <laughs> well, that's been kind of my thing. Is hmm. I think he's lost his credibility for people who yeah. are posting. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it. I won't be watching it because I watched the first few episodes and, enough so it, it it doesn't set itself up well in the early parts of the season and this is supposed to be like an event thing and it wastes so much time with long slow considerations and pauses you know what it actually reminded me of production wise the eternals right kind of lumbering and slow mm-hmm mm-hmm 100 percent and then there's a cameo right at the end that people have been kind of saying, oh, my God, I hope that happens because it really should. And, you know, we heard their voice in, the, in other things and blah, 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 blah. Like, yeah, it happens. And it does nothing. 
it's it's it again just like the rest of the whole fucking series it is a nil sum of nothing especially when you weigh it against what happens in the original trilogy of um for luke skywalker and his development and how quickly he gets um jedi powers and things like that really okay you're not actually painting your Jedi masters in a good light here when things are picked up so much quicker by people who have had no fucking training. Uh, right. You know. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's a, that's a no from you. This is a big fucking no. I was not expecting much for this and somehow it disappointed me. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Harsh. Harsh but fair. <laughs> um, so Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad to see I didn't miss very much. In, no, you uh, did in not. not choosing not to continue with Kenobi, and it's mm-hmm. quite a disappointment. Um, yeah. Interesting as an article, and I think in the Guardian today, going, we need less Ewan McGregor in Kenobi. I'm yes, like, less Ewan McGregor in Kenobi. I'm like, he's the only good thing about it. The first two episodes uh, I saw, but um, but okay. this this show needed to be about anyone else, but it just so happens that kenobi pops in anyone else's point of view and it would have suddenly been a little bit more interesting now while so, i am on um the kicking the, the boots into disney do you mind if i quickly talk about the new Ms. marvel by episode? all means by all means so I talked about in the first episode where it was very much um, kind of taking on a lot of the ideas of kind of Edgar Wright style storytelling and uh, John Watts from Spider-Man Homecoming's directorial style and how it was all about introducing us to, to Kamala Khan. Episode two came out and the same things really applied. They started to actually do things and we actually started to get a little bit of mild threat. Um, And then we just had today episode three come out and we've probably now met the main bad guys and given something, it's, you know how, quite often in particularly Marvel movies, but in a lot of superhero movies, when we meet that character that is going to become the bad guy and they play it. So like, Oh, they're going to be the friend first. And then it's going to be the turn. So there's um, emotional connection between the hero and the villain. And it's like, you were my brother Anakin, blah, 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 blah. They turn on a fucking dime in episode three. We have this like, oh, isn't isn't it nice? We finally finally caught uh, caught up with you for the first time ever, and already as soon as someone says that, it's like I've been looking for you for a long time, ladies and gentlemen. As a public health warning, if anyone ever says that to you, have red flags and alarms going off in your bell because they're probably not doing anything good. They've probably not been doing it for altruistic reasons, and that's exactly what happens here. And we get a very rushed confrontation between Kamala and the bad guys and there's a li- they flirt Disney flirts a little bit with um racial profiling Ooh. yeah because um damage control which is a separate arm of the US government that deals with um the immersion and um 
continuing problem of superpowered individuals in America. And they they are the ones who come in and um, deal with we saw we saw things like um, in Spider-Man Homecoming, where um, Michael Keaton's character is kind of doing all the, the cleanup from from the battle in New York. And then those people come in and just kind of wash over his his things. We get some of that here. And there is that momentary interesting element where this uh, damage control go to mosque because they have worked out impressively considering they've worked out that um, this new emerging superhero potentially from AvengerCon is um, Muslim. And so they've been going to mosques and things like that. And they come into a mosque and one of the characters, um, one of Kamala's friends actually stops them and says, they need to have a warrant and, she asks the question, are you coming here because you think that we are helping them or are you coming here because we're a mosque? And it's like, oh, okay. They actually addressed that little bit of stereotypical profiling of, oh, there's a terrorist, comes from a mosque and all of that horrible, horrible tarring with the same brush kind of thing that goes on. But then it's kind of very quickly just like, yeah, we, we did it. We ticked that box and move on with other things. So it's going to be interesting to see if that comes back at all as a growing or persistent theme for the show. But that right now, balls that you don't usually associate with Disney. Exactly. Exactly. So kudos to them for actually addressing it, even, even cursorially. But um, I don't think that they're going to really come back to it in any major way. It is overall getting better, but it's still a mess of a narrative. It's it. I still don't actually know what the hell her power is. Um, there's repeated connections to Jin, and anyone who wants to learn more can research that. I won't go into it in detail in case you want to stay spoiler free. Um, I enjoyed mine. Yeah, uh, birthday present. <laughs> Spice train. Mm-hmm. Lucky boy. Save some for yeah. me. I will. I will. Uh, this will definitely be shared, not just consumed by myself. <laughs> <laughs> the next time you see me, I'll just be going, <sighs> dead and pickled. Um, so, yeah, it's getting better, but I re- it's, it's just such a mess of a story. And I don't know whether it's intentional because the character of Kamala Khan kind of comes across as a little bit um, ADHD. And I don't know if they're just trying to keep you in her head. They're not doing a good job of that, if they are. And if they are doing that, I think it's pushing a little bit too far for a Disney Marvel show when they've got far more other interesting, compelling things that they could be pushing. For example, explaining who their superhero is. Uh, It is the lowest, the story has come out, but it is the lowest viewed Mm -hmm. of the Marvel Disney TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are saying it's because it's up against Kenobi. Other people, it's just fatigue. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people seem to say it's a reasonably good show. Hmm. I mean, production-wise, it actually they actually invest in um, real locations, <laughs> which they, which they have they haven't used in a Star Wars movie for a very long time. Um, and it's nice to actually go. Oh yeah, this is. I think it's set in New Jersey. And it's actually kind of nice. Like, again, I keep going back to Spider-Man because it's, you know, they're all 
based in the same kind of multi-city city, um, it's nice that you can actually see life on the streets. And what is, again, what is nice about this is um, the fact that it is really investing and celebrating Pakistani culture in New York. And it's interesting and it's a compelling start side of society that we don't often get a chance to see, particularly through this medium of superhero and um, popcorn. It's, um, it's nice because most of the time, if someone does dare to make a movie about um, any kind of Muslim culture um, background, whether, whether they're from Pakistan or anywhere else, it's usually a more somber kind of fair, just trying to take a serious, genuine look at it. Or but, they're the bad guy. Yeah. And it's so, so it's nice to actually have so much brightness with the colors and things. Cause there's a, there's a wedding and it's all about color and um, life. And the um, there's uh, in episode two, there's a celebration of Eid. And so it's, it's really nice to see this just joy in that society being presented. So it is a really refreshing take. They're not folding it into the story well, though. So it just seems like these weird pops in the story that are more interesting than the story. So it's going to be interesting to see how they wrap it all up, but I'm fast losing interest because much like a lot of um, Batman movies, they're kind of forgetting about the main character and going on about everything else around. Could we if hear a bit more Ms. about the title character, please? Yeah, yeah. So more of Miss Marvel, less of Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'll be happy. <laughs> well, I'm going to bring the tone down now. Yeah, okay. You've been, okay. You're talking hopeful things. You've been talking, you know, almost a bit of a pat in the back for Disney there, saying, you know, you haven't quite nailed it, but you're doing good. You're trying different things, mm -hmm. is what I'm hearing here. Mm -hmm. and we encourage different things, but... Yes. Uh, so... The palate cleanser on Saturday night after <laughs> Star Trek 3. So Michelle gets us to pick us up a palate cleanser. She was, as people last week noted, uh, as I talked about earlier, it was supposed to be Rocky 4. Mm -hmm. Didn't get to happen because of reasons I outlined earlier. Fuck you, fuck you, Prime. Um, so we have a bit of trial and error and a bit of back and forth about what it should be this week. We landed on mm, get and the City 2008. The, the film version, not the TV show. Now, I have seen a little bit of a TV show in the past. My, mm -hmm. Years ago, uh, my ex-wife was a fan, and after she kind of got me across the line on the Gilmore Girls, that's a good show, by the way, um, uh, Sex in the Four. Well, we'll try a couple episodes of Sex in the City. It's very highly rated. Like People will say it's very good. And you know what? I didn't think the TV show was terrible. Mm -hmm. The writing was actually pretty good when you compare it to a lot of its contemporaries. Like it's like when you, I think I've talked to you about it before when you first saw a Spice Girls, you're like, Ugh, God, that's awful. Until you saw the, the Spice Girls knockoffs that followed them. And you're like, actually mm. they did that kind of thing that they were doing pretty well compared to the drip that came afterwards. Same yeah. sort of thing with sex in the city. All mm -hmm. the knockoff shows that came after it, the writing wasn't half as clever or as good as the TV show. Mm -hmm. They were ripping off a TV version of Sex and the City. So, and I was vaguely aware of who the characters were. 
um, vaguely aware of the nature of their relationships. Although I was in a little bit of a position like Michelle is with Star Trek in the sense that she doesn't fully appreciate the relationships between the characters in a depth that a Trekkie would having watched that show for years. Yeah. I know who Samantha and um, the other ones are. Um, (laughs) Kim Cattrall, like she was in a Trek film, so like Carrie, and you know, like she's the overly sexed one, and yada yada yada. But like, I didn't truly understand the um, minutiae or the the detail of their relationships together. And I Mm. think what's what this film's trying to be, it's a, I think, is a a really a a deep dive, an exploration, a celebration of female friendship of women Mm. into. Their forties, I guess they're in their forties, late thirties, early forties in this show, um, and I think it's not just women. Like I think it's a it's an, it's a thing you decide when you get to about our age where it's actually really hard to stay friends with people. Like mm-hmm. people get married, they have kids, they move away, they get jobs, they get mm-hmm. arrested, they join QAnon. Um, it's just you know, I've heard you know. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, like, um, it's hard to stay in touch with people. So, it, like, it, it is actually a nice story about uh, a bunch of, you know, it's probably even harder for women, I guess. Um, but, like, they're actually chosen, worked hard, and they choose to stay close with each other and mm. remain this friendship. That's a good thing I can say about this film. Mm-hmm. Um, this film is two hours and 25 minutes. Oof. Like, people know my thoughts on films that are too long. I, I, it's a regular criticism of stuff that I like watching, let alone something that's not really up my alley or designed for me. It's obviously I'm not their target audience. But I was just flabbergasted that they this film was two hours and 25 minutes. This is 155. To, it's just, what? Like, I have, it's, I am, I was gobsmacked. They, like, for this film, mm. two and a half hours long, like, um, and it, this it, continues on from the TV show, right? Yes, I believe so. Um, so you know, yeah, it's you, all the same stars. I mean, you know, we have, you know, we have uh, obviously Sarah Jessica Parker as Carrie, Kim Trell as Samantha, Cynthia Nixon as Miranda, Kristen Davis as Charlotte. Important other character being Chris North. He <laughs> shall not be named um, as Mister Big. Um, is from the TV show. Like, I don't understand why you make. Why would you make this film that long? It's and. Here's the shocking part for me. Mm. It takes 40 minutes before the story starts. Like, what there is, it? is no story. It, there is no story in the first 40 minutes. It is just interaction between characters, like banter. Okay. You know, like the actual core story of this film, it starts after 40 minutes. So wow. maybe you can pull that shit off on TV. I don't think it makes great cinema. Um, you know, you can just have characters bantering off at each other. And like, you mm. know, but generally speaking, if you're going to tell a two-and-a-half-hour fi- film, you need a story. It's a little yeah. bit like when we talked about the Batman that came out. Like, if you're going to – was it three hours of the Batman? If yep. you've got a three-hour Batman film, your film, your story must be fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. Mind-bogglingly awesome, which it wasn't. Um, it was just purely self-indulgence that that film to be three hours. This is – God, like that film, that mis- this film makes the Batman look like, you know, a Spartan, you know, student film in terms of self-indulgence. Like, it's, it's just, Michael Patrick King is the writer and director. I wasn't familiar with I know Candace Bushnell wrote the book, but mm. I don't believe she has anything to do with the um, 
the films of a TV show. And um, mm. uh, Michael uh, Patrick King is basically best known for his Sex in the City work. He did Two Broke Girls as well. So, you know, hey. yeah, okay. he's not exactly, you know, Alfred Hitchcock over here. Mm. Um, so, but this is just jerking off over the fact that the fans of a show will watch whatever he serves them, whatever slop he serves them. This is mm. what you'll watch it. And it's actually insulting <laughs> to his audience, I think. Um, so there's my first major complaint. If you're going to okay. if you're going to tell me, you've got to get cracking for story. It must yeah. be an interesting story. It's not an interesting story. Essentially, we pick up the characters. They're meandering through life as they do, having lunch together, having amazing rich lives. Um, the essential, I guess, the the drama of a story comes from uh, Mr. Big at one point proposes to Carrie. The okay. reason he proposes is that he has bought Carrie an apartment, very, very, very nice apartment, and, you know, she's selling her apartment and she's worried that she's becoming too dependent on him and that she's sort of losing herself in the process and she's leaving herself open to, you know, being left high and dry if they should ever split up and, you know, she's given up all these things and she doesn't actually have an interest in, you know, the property she lives in. She's living at his largesse, at his pleasure, which is which is fair. It's not a terrible angle for your story to take about mm -hmm. um, women. It happens. Um, so his interpretation of her concern about that is, just, why don't we get married? In a very unromantic sort of um, proposal, they agree. And then the wedding becomes bigger than Ben-Hur. Um, and um, I'm sorry, is it okay to give spoilers about a... 14-year-old film, I think it is. Oh, um, no, I was so desperate to watch this movie, Trav. Please don't spoil it for uh, me. He jilts her at the altar because he gets, <gasps> he gets, um, he gets um, I don't know, cold feet or something, um, mainly because, and this is a criticism of a character, um, Carrie Bradshaw is a horrible human being. Uh, selfish. <laughs> that, uh, that was what I needed. Um, <laughs> but my doctor says I can't keep drinking like that. So... <laughs> And I, I blame those horrible films we watched years ago. Um, mm, but, uh, so uh, she is, Carrie does not at any point seem to check in with her fiance. What kind of wedding would you like? Uh, it's just, she just increases bigger than Ben Hur because she's sort of is, mm -hmm. she's a writer in the show. Um, Michelle makes quite an astute observation that she has a hell of a life for a writer. He has yeah. you know, incredible clothes, you know, amazing apartment, yeah. you know. Uh, incredible income, you know. Uh, so that's writers living right. It's when you you live in this lap of luxury. I've seen it, you know. Like, um, <laughs> um, so I was like, even in the different, like in the early two thousands, did people who wrote for like the New York Times and stuff? Did they make? Yeah, I money? missed the window. I, missed uh, the window. I don't know, but apparently not. So apparently, it's bullshit either way. Um, but she's a very selfish character, and because this wedding's become bigger than Ben Hur. That is essentially what gives Mr. Big Kristoff cold feet, but that's kind of poorly explained. But mm -hmm. it is kind of actually probably one of the most effective scenes in the film is where she realises that she's been jilted at the altar and you do actually kind of feel the something of the humiliation um, and, and and just, you know, okay. anguish she feels. Mm. And my favourite scene is her catching him catching up with her in the street as she drives away from, you know, Cancelled wedding and her beating him over the head with her bouquet. It's, you know, at least a useful purpose for a bouquet. Mm. 
And that's basically the story. That's basically it. She gets jilted at the altar by Mr. Big and they look after her. Her friends look after her. And okay. she starts to feel better about herself because she's pretty down. They take her to a gorgeous resort in Mexico and uh, Kristen Davis shits her pants because she won't eat Mexican food and uh, she eats American pudding and she brings home food. Like, it's actually incredibly racist, you know. Oh, I couldn't eat the food here. It's Mexico. <laughs> like, okay. Oh, dear. Um, and I guess the, 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 she brings this pudding with it from, from the United States to eat in Mexico but she doesn't trust the food. And the joke is, she goes, look, it's made in Poughkeepsie. Mm. Poughkeepsie? And she shits her pants at Poughkeepsie? Poo? It's, a, it's a poo joke. Um, you know. Uh, this last week, I've been telling a lot of dad pun jokes to friends, and they have always just responded with that kind of typical <sighs> sigh emoji. And that one, just I just suddenly realized what pain I've been delivering to them. <laughs> Um, so I actually found this film distasteful. Like, mm. um, that might sound strange to people. It might sound pretentious, but like, this is a, a living, breathing catalog. Like entire segments of this film are just them shouting essentially brand names at the screen. Okay. Obviously we're not just sitting here standing going, you know, Gucci, Louis Verot. Like, they're not doing that, but it's basically... You remember that scene in Fight Club where Edward mm. Norton's walking through his apartment and it's got all the, the things saying, like, it's like yeah. walking through an Ikea catalogue? Yeah. That's what this film is like. Oh, look, it's your Louis Vuitton bag. Oh, my God. I hired this bag. It's my Louis Vuitton bag. And I've got it until Thursday and blah, blah, blah. Oh, look, I've got you a real Louis Vuitton bag. And oh, my God, it's a Vivian Westwood dress and blah, blah, blah. And it's Mahalo Balanic shoes, which I, that's a, quite a, a significant character thing and, and note or. Okay. Story beat in the film is he gets she gets this pair of shoes and people are going to be laughing their um their heads off because I can't pronounce the brand name. It was something on the lines of my Manolo Balanic shoes. I, I would have absolutely before Saturday night if you told me Manolo Manolo Balanic was the bad guy in the new season of Star Trek Discovery, I would have gone, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. But no, yeah. no, yeah. it's a brand of shoe. <laughs> very, very, very expensive shoes, and then. Largely horrible. Um, at least they look horrible to me. Um, well, let's and, face it, you just don't have the ankles for them anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tragedy. <laughs> that hiking um, accident just caused you so many woeful fashion it was, problems. It was that it was that getting out of Greece just keeps continuing by breaking my ankle just continues to <laughs> cost me. Um, and you know the thing, I guess the side that made me most cringe the most in this film. Mm. Was well, a scene where Mr. Big has bought her a new apartment. It's gorgeous, it's huge, it's Manhattan. It's worth millions of dollars. Mm. Um, and she complains that the closet's not big enough. The closet is not big enough. And I mean, like, you know, there are situations where that would be a valid complaint. You know, you, I'm, I'm mm. renting a new house. This literally, this house literally doesn't have closets. I kind of, you know, you need to put your clothes somewhere. Um, mm. But she's just been gifted, basically. This, gigantic apartment and she's complaining about the closet and there's a scene later on where he basically goes oh i'll have to build you a new one and he shows her the new closet he's built and it's bigger than most people's apartments in new york mm. in her closet and it's like it's that big and it's supposed to be like this amazing ah moment i guess for people to go oh my god i wish i had a closet like that and i can't say there are probably people out there who don't wish they had a closet like that mm. 
for me, I was just like, oh god, you are disgusting. This is disgusting. This mm. is a this is a show about fucking massively privileged, rich, bored white women in New York who do nothing of substance and have nothing of substance to say. Hedonism. It, it probably kind of yeah. It's basically wish fulfillment for 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 people who enjoy fashion, I guess. Um, I mean, look, and I, I'm not saying you're not allowed to enjoy this because you can enjoy whatever you want. I enjoy horrible, terrible things. Like mm. if you, I literally looked up on YouTube a 25 year old British reality TV show to watch while I was eating dinner tonight. That's how I have my guilty pleasures. Trust me. Um, but this is just repugnant. Like this is awful, awful. <laughs> like. And the thing is, I don't think fans like this much either. I mean, in fairness, I admit it's, it was Michelle's palate cleanser. I think she likes this it. It was. It had a sixty-five million dollar budget. Mm. Box office four hundred eighteen million. It made a lot of money. I'm just gracing this off the fact that IMDb has a five point six user rating and a fifty-three mm. meta score. So mm. I don't know. Look, obviously there might be people voting for this on here who aren't the kind of people who would normally enjoy a Sex in the City film, and that's fine. That would be people like me. Um, but, you know, there's comments like the first user, the top user review, a disappointed longtime fan of a series. Um, I'm sure I guarantee people went and saw it. Like if people love a TV show, would have definitely gone and seen it, but I don't know that a lot of them liked it. I'm just basing mm. this off the evidence in front of me. I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like... Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, any TV show that sort of makes its way onto the big screen, it, um, it, it, it you're probably going to go and see it. But as I was thinking, Orange, sorry, Fifty Shades of Grey, not a TV show, but obviously the book sold a squillion copies, mm-hmm. and then it made its way to the big screen. And I don't think I've heard many people say good things about the film. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's eviscerated enough. But that was last week's Power Cleanser, and my God, that was one of the it was one of the longest two and a half hours I've ever had. Like a film like this should be ninety minutes in and out. So yeah, that's that's <clears throat> that's hard. That's I, I, we're, hard. we're running a little long, so I, you I, know what? Um, you need to increase your hatred towards the streaming services because if it had been Rocky Four, that's just a sweet one hour thirty one minutes. You know, the guys who made Rocky knew what they were doing. I, I, I just, I was boggled. Like, there's no story. There is probably yeah. 25, 30 minutes of actual story in that film. And add the bantering that people seem to enjoy. You know, like, it'd be almost like a Seinfeld movie where, like, an hour of it was just him sitting at Tom's diner and going, you know, what is it here? What's salsa? You know, like, <laughs> like, the fans would probably be okay with that. But, like, you do need mm. a little bit of something to drive a story along, and I didn't think that was really there. Fair enough. But I'm going to keep moving and move on to something actually good, though. Yes, please. Before we finish up for tonight, unless you've got anything else. But, like, um, a few weeks ago, we had someone pop on into the chat and Mm. recommend to us The Offer, a show I had never heard of. So Mm. if you're listening to the audio version or you're re-watching the video later on, try to to remember to jump on in and watch us on Twitch or YouTube or Facebook at 7.30 Australian Eastern Time, and you can offer a suggestion as mm-hmm. well because we will take suggestions. Yes. Uh, we will suggest that the author. The author is Oscar-winning producer Albert S. Reddy's never-before-revealed experiences of making The Godfather. So basically, this is a, sh- a limited series 
telling the story of how they made The Godfather. And this is fucking brilliant. I cannot tell you how fucking good this is. This is so good. I like mm. I binged like three episodes on Monday night alone. And the only reason I stopped is I had to get up and do stuff in the morning. Uh, it's so good. The cast is top notch. We're back <laughs> with Miles Teller again. Uh, mm. He's getting around at the moment. He plays Albert S. Ruddy, who is the producer of The Godfather. Matthew mm-hmm. Good plays Robert Evans. If you don't know Matthew Good, if I'm not mistaken, he plays Ozzy Mandias in the mm-hmm. Schneider version of mm-hmm. The Watchmen, the much maligned, uh, unfairly maligned Schneider Watchmen film. And he was mm-hmm. good in that film, but I don't think I've seen him pop up in anything else since. He was in uh, a Channel Park movie um, as well that was actually surprisingly good. I can't remember the name of it, though. But for those people who don't know, Robert Evans, very interesting producer, and um, he was the book that I accidentally stole off of my co-host called The Kid Stays in the Picture. And there's actually a fantastic documentary of the same night. And and it's made me want to go back and watch that again. Mm. Um, because he he is Robert Evans. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason I can say that is because Robert Evans made that documentary about himself. Mm. Um, so you, you do get a pretty good idea of who you're talking about. He is Robert Evans, and it's so interesting. He's so good in this. Um, Colin Hanks is Barry Laputis, who is okay. sort of the corporate lackey for Golf and Western, which owns Paramount. Paramount mm-hmm. being the production company making The Godfather. Giovanni mm-hmm. Ribisi playing Joe Colombo, who is a, uh, a gangster who is um, initially opposed to the creation of The Godfather and trying to prevent it, prevent it from being made. Juno mm-hmm. Temple is killing it. There's mm-hmm. Betty McCart, who is um, Albert's um, Albert's assistant. Uh, other names in here you might know. The great Lou Ferrigno is in here in a great role. Um, okay. And uh, Dan Fogler is Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, Dan Fogler, uh, is pretty good. Uh, Anthony Ippolito playing Al Pacino is really, really pulls it off well. Patrick okay. Gallo is fantastic as Mario Puzo, the writer of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I can't tell you if you're a fan of making movies, mm. you're gonna love this. If you're a fan of a Godfather, mm. you're gonna love this. If you're just a fan of a really fucking good story, really well told. You're going to love this. It looks amazing. The people mm-hmm. in it who are playing the characters that you've heard of look and sound a lot like those characters. Um, I don't fully – I know I've heard bits and pieces over the years about the story of how The Godfather mm-hmm. was made, but this really squares with those stories that I, I, I've heard of. And it all feels legit, and I think it all is legit, but mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like stuff's happening because a story needed to happen. It feels like stuff that happened because – that's what happened, mm. you know. So um, despite the fact that The Godfather was a massive bestseller hit, it was not popular amongst Italian-Americans. Mm. And the mob in particular was not a fan of it. And the mob in particular wanted to go out of their way to make sure it didn't get made. Mm. Um, and they were pulling whatever strings they could. Um, Frank Sinatra wasn't a fan of the book. He was a character in there he thought um, to, um, was based on him and it wasn't a good character. Mm. Um, and I'm only up to episode three. Um, is the whole everybody's season doing it? Yeah, uh, I believe it is. It is available on Paramount Plus. It's a mountain of entertainment, don't you know? And I know I do stick the boots into Paramount a little bit, but like this Yellow Jackets, if you like Trek, Strange New Worlds is on there as well. You know, that's that's something. That's something. That's worth a seven day free trial, I think, in mm-hmm. being a city. Um, 
like I, I, I've only got much time to talk about it, but like I, I think I can't remember the viewer who who recommended it to us, but thank you. This would be probably in my top three shows of a year so far. Um, oh. It's that good. It's so enjoyable. It's like the episodes are about fifty minutes an hour, and they just go like that because they're so entertaining and they're so engrossing. And it's you just because you know, obviously, it's a little bit like. Um, Kenobi, in a way, in a sense, like you know what happens at the end of Kenobi, right? We all, you all saw Star Wars. We know what happens at the end of the series, though, right? Like, I mean, we all know what the Godfather is. We know it didn't go anywhere. We know it's a it's a massive hit. We know, you know, uh, they get Brando to do it, and it's a it's arguably the greatest film ever made. It's in the top three. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's no actual, in a way, it doesn't feel like there should be anything at stake here because. Like it all gets made, yeah. But it doesn't. If the show makes you forget that, it suspends your disbelief so beautifully. Mm. You you forget what you know, and you just go, "Don't care. I'm just going to enjoy the ride." Which yep. probably what Kenobi should have done, right? Mm-hmm. You know he survives, mm-hmm. but hey, what we're going to give you a cracking story, and he's going to enjoy the ride. Yeah, about how he survives until Star Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, but they've obviously chosen to go a different direction. Yeah. Um. So amazing cast. Um, some of the directors here are actually really quite impressive. Some of the uh, episodes, um, I just had a quick look at the other the episode. I just quickly noted I was watching one of them, and mm-hmm. the director was Dexter Fletcher. Ooh, so I think there's a few episodes, not all of them, are directed by Dexter. I'm just going to have a quick look here. Um, if you don't know who Dexter <laughs> he doesn't correct direct all of them, but some of the episodes are directed by Dexter Fletcher, who, mm. of course, best known for his role in Press Club. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, he's also a yeah, director of an Academy Award picture, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he directed um, Bohemian Rhapsody, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, right. Well, he directed Rocket Man and then came in and salvaged Bohemian Rhapsody. I think he's credited as a director, though, right? As opposed to Brian Singer, who kind of got that eh, go away, don't come back. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't, anyway, I could be wrong. No, he's not credited, so I thought he did. Anyway, so he, he worked yeah, on he came in and, um, and repaired it. Um, whether or not, how much? I guess maybe it's one of those directors killed things. But like, he is mm-hmm. a um, a big big time director, mm-hmm. uh, and he does a fantastic job with a few episodes he's given here. But it looks great as well. The periods detail is very nicely done. Mm-hmm. Um, the little references to stuff. I got uh, lots of movie stars like Steve McQueen, Robert Redford, Ali McGraw. All the actors have got look the part. Very nice. This is just so in my wheelhouse. I love stories about film. I loved he's the man, the boy, the kid stays in the picture. I thought it was a great mm-hmm. documentary. Yeah, this film makes me want to go back and watch that again. Makes me want to go back and watch The Godfather again. Fantastic. That's what that's what a show like this should do. It stands on its own, but it inspires you to go and learn more about the people involved and more about the project that it is based on. Um. So I'm glad that one of us got to see some good stuff this week. Well, look, I mean, hopefully you find a, you know, hopefully you um you manage to access, you maybe give it a free trial or something of that nature to to mm. take a look at this when it's um. Well, I think as I said, I think all ten episodes are out. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, if you uh, if next time you have some leave, um, you know, I think they just finished last week airing so on um on Paramount Plus. So if you have some time off, if you got if you've got the Rona mm-hmm. and you've got to spend a week at home, there are so many, like, honestly, 
forget about Miss Marvel, forget about Kenobi. This is something that's really original and new. Mm-hmm. I think I would pick it every time over something like that. Fantastic. It's great stuff. Um, so that pretty much brings us to the end of this episode of Armchair Producers. I can already tell you a couple of things that I'm going to be talking about next week. First up, Umbrella Academy Season 3 just dropped today. I started watching the first episode and it is already one of just just a joy to watch because it embraces the weird and the stupid and the comedy and the character the actors really know their parts i'm looking forward to it i'm finally actually going to get around on friday i am going to go and watch men at the cinema so i'm looking forward to that um and i finished re-listening to neil gaiman's book um, American Gods, which I think I've talked about way back when, when I uh, first read it, was one of the very few Neil Gaiman books I didn't like. And I now, having listened to it again, and I'm going back and rewatching the series, I have a clearer understanding of why. And I'll go into that more next week. Um, of course, we talked about Blowout this week, and we are going to be watching Broken Arrow next week because we're nothing but classy on this show. Uh, we talked about the um, disappointing um, Spider-Head on Netflix, which I keep forgetting that I actually watched. That's how good it was. Yeah, yeah, that's how good it is. Um, Kenobi has come to an end, so I won't have to talk about that anymore. Miss Miss Marvel is still trudging along, doing a little better. Um, we had The Offer, Sex in the City, and, of course, the star of the show, the Trek perspective talk, talking about the search for Spock next week. They will be talking about the quest for peace. I don't know what is oh, that's, Star that's Trek Four's tagline like. It's um, no, the, the, quest for, the voyage home. The quest that's for peace it. is Superman Four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that mashup, but no. <laughs> just one one moment. So, like Mr. Sulu is there. He's like Captain. There's something. Oh, it's just gone past us. <laughs> you just see Superman. It's nuclear just man. <laughs> Afternoon, I'm on my way to Krypton. Uh, yeah, Star Trek for the voyage home. Star Trek for, for the voyage for Superman. And we hopefully should have um, Rocky Four this week for us. Fingers crossed, because that is the white whale, the unicorn of cinema in this modern age of 91 minutes. <gasps> just, just, just merciful. It doesn't doesn't happen anymore, and I, I miss it so much every day. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for watching. Don't forget, you can um, follow us on twitch.tv slash thefrybane, as it's showing on the bottom of the screen there. Um, Armchair Producers on Facebook um, and on uh, the, tw- the Twitters. I'm at thefrybrain, at eviltrav, um, youtube.com slash armchairproducers. Make sure you pop in, leave comments and things like that. We really do appreciate it. Until next time, good night. Good night.